1: you're listening to the exchange here's today's show thank you very much scott and welcome to the exchange i'm kelly evans and ahead this hour oil's higher the dollar's higher and yields are breaking out to 16 year highs is this the reaction the fed was looking for after its meeting yesterday and how should the central bank grapple with the glut of government debt that also seems to be pushing yields higher We ask the man who created one of the rules of the road for central banking, John Taylor, joins us shortly. Plus, with stocks stalling and yields at multi-year highs, is the bond market the place to be buying right now? I just saw Krishna Mamani tweeting that. One of our guests says yes, the other says no. We'll debate where they see the best opportunities. And Clavio is said to be a bellwether for other software names that could go public. As the stock falls back towards its IPO price today, we'll look at the fallout across the industry. And for one big publicly traded name in particular. First, so let's get the latest on these markets with Dom Chu and Red Dom, 230. Thirty-one points or so, we're down on the Dow now.
2: And not just that, Kelly. We're right now near session lows. If you take a look at that Dow, Kelly mentioned the 232-point drop that we're seeing. That equates to roughly two-thirds of one percent to the downside for the Dow, which stands at 34,210. The broader-based S&P 500 large-cap index currently stands at 43.52. That's down 50 points, north of one percent losses there. And just to give you an idea, it's been a down day overall so far. Even at the highs of the session, we were down roughly. 25 to 27 points, down 52 at the low. So again, right at or near the lows of the session right now. The Nasdaq composite, though, the real underperformer off one and a quarter percent. The composite index, 13,300, the last trade there. Kelly mentioned the multi-multi-year highs that we're seeing in interest rates. These are, again, fresh cycle highs. you got to go all the way back to 2007. November 1st, 2007, to see yields back at this 4.47 level. That's how long it's been, and that's the reason why it's so significant right now and why some folks are debating about whether there's quote unquote value in treasury bonds right now given a four point four seven percent yield. It's been a long time since we've seen this. That's adding to some of the angst that we're seeing in that big technology trade from a valuation standpoint. And in deal news today, a mega merger, takeover Thursday, I guess we'll call it Splunk is being acquired by Cisco Systems, which is down by the way four and a quarter percent right now. Splunk up 21%. It's gonna pay a good amount for this stock and it's its biggest deal, Cisco's going all the way back to 2006, 2007, when they bought Scientific Atlanta, in this case here, Splunk is all about that cybersecurity element there. And can Cisco provide some of those systems and solutions to its clients on that cyber front going forward? So a big deal there. I know that we're going to be talking about a lot more about this throughout the course of the day, Kelly. But that's your deal of the day. Splunk and Cisco Systems. I'll send things back over.
1: Yeah, we'll have more a little later this hour. Dom, thank you very much. And as he said, stocks are sliding after the Fed paused yesterday but warned of another hike this year and higher rates for longer. My next. Good- says it's actually good news because it means the Fed funds rate is getting closer to the Taylor rule setting. Joining me now is John Taylor. He's creator of the Taylor rule. That ties interest rates to inflation and economic growth. CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is here with us as well. Uh, Mr. Taylor, great to see you again. And uh, yeah, before I go too far down the road here, just give me your kind of thoughts on, on the action so far.
3: Well, I think they're in the right direction for sure. Remember, it wasn't too long ago, it was 25 basis points. They were way off then, and they're a lot closer now. I think you know 5.5 is pretty close to where they're going to be. You can plug in a 3.7% inflation rate, and it's about right on. So I think they're doing the right thing, maybe a little bit more, but they're doing the right thing. And they have seen it a little bit more. I don't think it's so bad.
1: Can I ask you, I'm just going to go ahead and jump to a bunch of conclusions here, or, or different parts of the, of the kind of interest rate complex to talk about. So How do real rates figure into everything? You know, we always talk about the Taylor rule and the different inputs of it. But I'm looking at the 10 year tips yield at 2.1 percent, more than double where we were in May with hypotheses floating about how it might be supply driven because there's so much more government debt to finance. And these they all seem feel like parameters traditionally outside of the Taylor rule. I'm just wondering if you could comment on that.
3: Well, it's not completely outside the Taylor rule. You know, we have a inflation rate in the Taylor rule. It's a very important thing. The inflation rate is most recent reading to 3.7 percent as well above the 2 the, percent. The Fed has indicated its target is 2. And so it's closer to the Taylor rule, but it's not uh, all the way. And I think that these are these are things sometimes are put in, sometimes they're not. The, un, the un, un, unemployment rate is another factor sometimes. But I think it's, in terms of the inflation rate, it's still well above 2%. Uh, Jay Powell emphasized 2% is their, where they're trying to go. So that's, that's a factor.
1: Steve, let me bring you in here.
4: Yeah, John, I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't know, confused or whatever. But uh, when you see the Fed's own forecast for next year, they do show inflation coming down. They have a PCE inflation number for two, of 2.5% on the headline, 26 six on the core. And yet they maintain a funds rate of 5.1%. That's according to the average. Again, this is not policy. This is the average of, of the official's forecast. But when you do the math, John, help me out here. Doesn't it mean the Fed gets tighter next year? And why would you want to be tightening policy into falling inflation? Do I have my math right? Um, And, and Professor, please tell me if I'm wrong.
3: The inflation has come down. Remember, it was 9.1 percent not too long ago. Now it's 3.7, 2.0. And so it's on its way down. And the question is if it's going to continue. I think the, the rate based on historical comparisons is about where it has been for similar inflation rates. And so this is a little bit of a tightening, a little bit of a restriction. But the main thing, it's, it's important for economic growth. And they've done this in a way that has not stifled economic growth so far.
4: We hope it doesn't. But, but is there some danger here of over-tightening? They seem to be on a trajectory for a soft landing. If they tighten next year, make uh, uh, conditions relatively tighter, don't they then risk essentially snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory?
3: I, I think the main thing is what happens is the inflation rate. The inflation rate is on its way down, and, and it's they're doing the right thing in, the, in that respect. If it doesn't come down, then the, the uh, calculations are off, and they have to reconsider. And don't forget, this is a global phenomenon, Steve. It's not just the United States. It's the rest of the world, the ECB, Latin America, uh, which is all part of this whole thing. The more I think we emphasize that it's not just the United States. United States is a leader here. People pay attention to the Fed but it's not the only game in town.
1: So Professor Taylor, help us understand, let's take Germany as the uh, example here. It's got 10 year bond yields at about 12 year highs, and it's in its third quarter of basically recession. So is that, you know, would you say that the ECB should tighten into that? You know, of course not. Um, their inflation rate is also quite high. So our GDP is better for now. But how much of the, the move in global bond yields right now even is, is related to what's going on with the Fed? And how much do you think has to do with with the fact that we've had this massive glut of government debt to finance?
3: Well, the, the debt is a big issue, and it seems to be there's efforts to bring it down. We'll see if it actually takes place. But I think the main thing that this has been hinted at in Jay Powell's discussion is maybe the, the normal rate, the natural rate, is no longer 1%. Maybe it's a little bit higher than exactly. 1%. and And that's an issue which the market's trying to digest. And just let me pause
1: there so that our viewers can follow while you'd bring that up. Is it possible that because there's so much more government debt that kind of natural interest rates have to be higher now? And is that is that a good or bad thing for the economy?
3: <laughs> I think the best thing for the economy is we begin to wind out this debt. I mean, we, it's not just monetary policy, it's fiscal policy, and they related quite well. By the way, regulatory policy is very important, too but I think that the debt has been on my mind for a long time. Monetary policy has been on my mind. I remember 25 basis points a little over a year ago, and so we're much better in a situation now than we were then. And I think that's something that you have to take into account. It's it's related to these decisions about the interest rate uh, that the Fed is going through.
4: John, could you help us explore this idea that Kelly just brought up, higher neutral rate? It's a lot of gobbledygook to a lot of people. Some days it's gobbledygook to me. But in any event, the idea that, that Powell hinted at yesterday in response to my question, that, that maybe the neutral rate is higher. Does that mean a higher funds rate for longer? Does that mean higher interest rates for longer? And in addition to, Kelly brought up the idea of debt. What else is behind that? And is it something that we should be pushing to make lower? Or do you just live with it because it is the neutral rate as given by, I don't know, on Mount Sinai?
3: I think you have to live up, live with it. But there's calculations, there's stocks, there's difference of opinions. I think, the, remember, member used to be 2%. That was down to 1%, maybe slightly lower. Now it's creeping back up again. At least that's what the Fed is saying. And I think that if that's the case, then we're going to see a, a normal interest rate, 2% inflation, 2% real. That's 4%. And so... Maybe that's where we'll be eventually, maybe a little bit lower than that. But I think that's that's what people should think about. And it, probably that's what's going through the markets right now, is maybe this neutral rate is a little higher. And maybe the calculations about that will affect monetary policy. We don't know.
1: Steve, quick last word. Where do we go from here in terms of uh, what, we, what we should be following?
4: Well, main- I'm looking at they just had the... Got, I'm sorry, they just had the chart up, and I'll let John have the last word if he's got time. But just very quickly, I want people to look at the chart that we had of the probabilities uh, that they just had up, the two up bars and the one down bar. What we see is about a 40% probability for a hike or a 45% probability of a hike by – there you go, guys. How great are you in the back there? 45% probability of a hike by December. That's now moved. And there's that 43% probability of a cut by June in there. So that's what I'm watching. I'm watching – Kelly, how the market digests this news from yesterday. It's all in a forecast, which means it's all ephemeral. But then you look at the two-year, you look at the 10-year, and the words and the forecasts of the Fed end up creating a reality. Whether or not that reality ends up being true in the future is irrelevant to how people process it today. And as you know, Kelly, it's being processed in a higher 10-year note. Look at that right there. Also a higher two-year note. So those are creating realities. Those are creating... Um, uh, essentially tightening or restricting a policy. Yesterday, I'm calling a, vi- a verbal or a virtual tightening. Yesterday,
1: interesting, Professor Taylor. Last word.
4: I think it's it indicate a little bit more
3: tightening, but it's only 50 basis points or 25 basis points, so it's pretty small. The main thing is next year, with the inflation rate coming down, we hope to maybe two percent. We'll see. Then we'll, the interest rate will be lower. That's that's behind the forecast.
1: All right, gentlemen, thank you both. Really appreciate your time today. John Taylor and our own Steve Leesman. Now, the Fed's comments are causing those bond yields to spike. The 10 year 448 at one point, a little bit off that now, highest in 16 years, 5.2 on the twos, its highest in 17 years. And the 30 year now at 455. That's about a 12 year high. So, should you be a buyer of these juicy yields or get out of the way as the bond sell-off gathers speed. Keith Fitzgerald is principal of the Fitzgerald Group and Joanna Gallegos is the founder of Bond Blocks. Uh, Joanna, welcome. Not sure I've seen, uh, we've seen each other before, so I'd love to know which side of this debate you're on. Yeah, we're definitely, hi, thanks
5: for having me. We're definitely on the side that investors should be adding a lot more fixed income to portfolios now, especially that we, it's very clear that rates will remain higher for longer. Uh, fixed income across the spectrum, even all the way up to high yield, is will be an important tool to act on now because these yields are now durable. And what that means is that for the foreseeable future, probably into 2024, um, you're going to be able to use bonds to help reduce the risk in your portfolio, but also achieve the same level of return that you were adding equities
1: for so long to do. And I, I should have guessed that bond blocks, you weren't going to come in here and say, you know, we hate bonds. But, but I, I, I am sympathetic to your point, very much so. So, Keith, I want you to talk me back from d- jumping. In. I mean, when the TLT and some of these long bonds are down 60 percent, if you had been a buyer or, or holder a couple of years ago, I mean, they're not going to zero at some point. Do you see, a, do you see a, a, an option there?
6: That's the key. And that that really is the nuance that everybody should be focused on right now. This stuff comes and goes. You can very eloquently make the argument for bonds at these yields because they do add a stabilizing impact to your portfolio. But really what you want to think about is what are you going to give up if you elect to go to safety? You can't hang a sign on your rear end that says, kick me when it's over, Kelly. <laughs> what you got to do is look at who's going to grow out of this. And I submit that you want to be thinking about stocks because you know that stuff is going to be the future. None of this sell-off interferes with the business case for owning them.
1: You, Keith, when I see you, I think NVIDIA. And uh, that may be for better, or maybe for worse. Now, obviously, the stock is still up, what, 200% or something this year. Um, but we've really circled back quite substantially. Are you trimming at this point?
6: No, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be absolutely going on the warpath here because, you know, we all we've done is retreat to where we were last May, right? You've got a company that's got 80-plus percent market share in the relevant things that it serves. It dominates the AI space. There is so much runway in front of this at a time where we are literally doubling and quadrupling the amount of data we create every single year. So... Absent another player, that's a company I'm very keen to own more of, and I hope I'm smart enough to do it.
1: <laughs> Joanna, one obvious theme here has been how well corporate credit has held out. I mean, it's remarkable. We have, you know, the benchmark, the treasuries backing up, just behaving horribly. But if you own something like high yield debt, those spreads are narrowing. What do you, what do you think about that?
5: Yeah. Spreads are narrowing, yet the coupon income has really been the driver of all returns for high yield over the last 10 or 20-year period. So mm-hmm. like with with rates as high as they are and yields in even triple C all the way up to 13%, you know, it's a really compelling time to consider high yield. And I'd also say, you know, I think there's a shift in the last 10 or 15 years. Investors have been so focused on equity and taking risk in equity that they kind of forget the fundamentals of fixed income. And now that bonds are back and you're, people are starting to in, in engage with these yields and these, these markets, I want to remind people that, like, high yield has, at you know, half the volatility of the S&P 500 broadly. That's surprising. And- and also even a little less than half the volatility of um, the Russell 2000. So we are used to these stories. We're used to equity being the driver of return. We're used to growth at really low rates. And that's changed. And even in your last segment, if we come to new levels uh, and baselines for interest rates, fixed income can be so much more powerful. And traditionally, the way it's performed in your portfolio um, it's important to start considering them now and act on them now. The right. resiliency
1: is uh, is is continues. So let me just ask you both quickly: if you think bond yields are rising for good reasons or bad reasons, you know you can point to jobless claims this morning, which are astoundingly low, and say, "Look, the economy's fine." That's your high yield point, Joanna, as well. But then you look at the behavior of the long end around the globe, and it feels like there's maybe something a little bit more nefarious going on here. And that, Keith, would not be a pleasant environment necessarily for the stock market.
6: No, unfortunately, it wouldn't be. But, you know, there's not a lot you can do about that. We can't control central bankers. But what we can control is the stocks we buy, the quality we pick, the instruments we use. Either bonds or stocks, doesn't matter. You can control that as an individual investor. So that is at least a silver lining.
1: Quick last word, Joanna.
5: Yeah, I, I would just say that, you know, the, the, the fundamentals are, are a lot stronger than, than people are appreciating. And, you know, we really should just, you know, consider the traditional role that fixed income has in a portfolio. Wait, for sure. why
1: is the bond person telling me how strong the economy? Nothing makes sense anymore, <laughs> Joanna. It does. But it, it makes sense if you think about how you came
5: into this market. They, you know, um, issuers had low rates. They have bonds that aren't going to mature. Only 5% of the high yield debt is going to mature in 20 to 2023 and 2024. So, Right. The way the firms can weather this period between now and maybe the next three years is very, very different and unique. It's so, it's so hard to keep your head focused on those fundamentals, but yeah. they haven't changed and they've been resilient through 2022 and 2023, and it looks like the same for 2024. You know, I take
1: your point about high yield, but then you'd think, you know, for the treasuries that maybe the yields would go back downwards. Uh, we will pick this up next time. I appreciate you both joining me today uh, to debate this one. It's been fun. Keith Fitzgerald you. and Joanna Gallegos. We do have a newsletter. Out of the FTC, where it seems private equity is in the crosshairs. Leslie Picker with the details, Leslie.
7: Hey, Kelly. Yeah, a new FTC lawsuit with a rare allegation against private equity for anti-competitive activities. The FTC's complaint filed in district court claims a firm called Welsh Carson Anderson and Stowe consolidated anesthesia practices in Texas through its company called U.S. Anesthesia Partners and then drove up prices. The FTC also says that U.S. AP entered price-setting arrangements and a deal to fend off another large anesthesia provider from encroaching on its territory. The FTC says that this roll-up and its resulting dominance in the market has cost Texans tens of millions of dollars more each year in anesthesia services than before USAP was created. FTC Chair Lina Khan says in a release, quote, the FTC will continue to scrutinize and challenge serial acquisitions, roll-ups and other stealth consolidation schemes that unlawfully undermine fair competition and harm the American public. This may be construed as a warning shot to private equity, which often flies under the radar of the FTC, but can drive synergies by buying up companies in the same field and merging them together. The FTC is seeking seeking equitable relief necessary to remedy the alleged impact and prevent it in the future. Now, I have a call out to Welsh Carson, which has raised more than $31 billion in capital since its founding over four decades ago and two months ago closed a new fund with $5 billion in capital. I've also reached out to USAP, but I haven't heard back from either yet, Kelly. I'll let you know when I do.
1: All right. Private equity uh, facing another headwind. Leslie, thank you very much, our Leslie Picker. We've got a news alert on Google and Broadcom. Christina Partsinevelis with the details. Christina. Well, Kelly, earlier this morning, you had the information that reported Google was looking at cutting ties with its AI chip supplier. That would be Broadcom by 2027. Reached out to Google, and they're pretty much saying otherwise right now from a statement, quote, we are productively engaged. With Broadcom and multiple other suppliers for the long term, our work to meet our internal and external cloud needs, benefit from our collaboration with Broadcom. They have been an excellent partner and we see no change in our engagement. They said right now no change in the engagement. That could potentially change in the next few years. Just for our audience to know, the relationship between both companies has been going on for quite a few years. Broadcom makes The chips that are designed by Google and then also provides very specific IP that's embedded in those chips. You initially saw the stock price for Broadcom drop dramatically this morning, but ever since then it's been climbing uh, steadily higher and even more so after this statement from Google came out. Kelly, very interesting wrinkle here. Christina, thank you, Christina Parts Nevelis. Despite what we just heard from Google, the make your own chips movement appears to be gaining momentum. Even Microsoft is reportedly beginning to cut down on orders for Nvidia's AI chips, betting on its own in-house chips to support the company's ambitions. Speaking of which, Microsoft's in Manhattan today with some AI announcements and the launch of their latest tablets and computers. And that's where we find our Steve Kovac along with a very special guest, Steve.
0: Hey there, Kelly. Yeah, joining me today, Yusuf Mehdi from Microsoft. Just You just got a new job. Uh, head of Windows and Surface Business now, in addition to everything else you've been doing for the last 30 years at Microsoft, so thanks for joining us on this day. Thanks for having us. Um, let's jump right in. The big news of the day is Copilot. That's your AI assistant that you're putting across Teams, and Outlook, and all your apps. It's coming to Windows as well. That's September 26th. But I think the one that everyone back home wants to hear about is the Copilot for the Enterprise, Microsoft 365, 30 bucks per user per month coming out November 1st. That's when you're actually gonna start selling it out of beta. I guess the big question is, why is it worth so much money? That's a hefty premium on top of what most of these customers are already paying. What are they getting for that extra 30 bucks
8: a month? Um, What you're getting is really some incredible capabilities that you can do today. So, for example, in the testing we've already done with Preview Customers, um, you're in a meeting, you can have a meeting summary, and the AI can summarize the entire meeting and give it to you in bite-sized chunks. If you missed the meeting, you can tell me what happened out of it. Uh, You can say, did I get action items? What did my boss say? When was I mentioned? And you can get all that that, that time is unbelievably precious, and for $30 a month, it's an incredible value. People have really love that capability. So,
0: and you're learning this from, you have several, couple hundred companies, right? Are already beta testing it. Correct. What have they learned so far? What have you learned from the people who are using Copilot now? How has that feedback come back to you and, to, and now that you're ready to launch?
8: So we've learned a lot, again, about where the use cases are, where the fit is. Um, there have been a couple different th- cases. Uh, creation in our PowerPoint, Word, Excel apps, people are really loving the value there. In Teams and then most recently what we just announced today, Microsoft 365 chat. The ability to, to be able to ask a question and have the AI reason across all of your information. So let's say your meetings, your Teams chats, your text messages, and in your documents where you can say, hey, tell me a little bit about what happened this last week. What's hot for me? What are the three things going on? and you can have all of that done for you automatically, it's an unbelievable time saving. Sounds
0: good for someone who misses a lot of meetings or takes a lot of vacation. Um, I think Kelly back in the studio has a question. Kelly?
1: Thanks, Steve. Yusuf. my question is at first a rather simple one, which is, does this only apply to Microsoft Teams meetings? Now that everyone's back in the office, a lot of these have gone back to in-person, and is there any way to catch up with in-person things I might have missed? And then can you also comment on this report that maybe Microsoft is pulling back a little bit on how much uh, of NVIDIA's AI chips it needs or just quite how much usage it's seeing of AI tools broadly now versus maybe six months ago.
8: Yeah, so on the first one, uh, you, Kelly, we see value for uh, the m 365 and Copilot across all those efforts. Even when with in-person meetings, um, we, now what we see with a lot of customers, they still run the team's capability to keep track of what's going on to have the teams chat, and so we see that value, even for in-person meetings. And as I said, the other use cases uh, individually, when you use it for your own use, to say look across all your documents, um, you get a much better acceleration of finding what you had, knowing what action items. Uh, And so we see that great use cases across both. Uh, In terms of like our AI chips, we, we still have the great partnership with NVIDIA. We've been doing a lot of work. The demand is so huge in terms of customers. Like we said, there's a waiting list for M365. That uh, we're doing everything we can to make sure we can meet that demand with with our partners.
0: Let's talk to Yusuf a little bit about the hardware today, because that plays into the AI story as well. So we have two new Surface laptops that are coming out on October 3rd. The the high end, the Studio. Uh, a lot of stuff can be done on device. It sounds like, whereas you know, this whole year we've been thinking about AI. You need those cloud, you know, those NVIDIA chips in the cloud processing all this. Is that coming down to the PCs? Is it coming down to mobile? What do you, is, how is that evolving?
8: Yeah, it's a great question. And so uh, one of the things that we are we're delighted to show today was the power of AI software experiences like Copilot being accelerated with AI chips and special computers like the Surface laptops and Laptop2. And what we showed today is the ability to actually run a local AI model, the, the Meta's Llama model uh, that's a couple trillion parameters. We ran that locally without a connection with the power on that chip. I think as we go forward, the ability to be able to use cloud and client and dynamically understand when you want to use the power of the chip to accelerate things or do things offline um, or add additional local context, we think that's sort of the next step of what will happen in some of the breakthroughs on systems.
0: So a lot of this is happening on Windows or on your own homegrown devices. When are we gonna start seeing this expanding? A lot of people need this on mobile, a lot of people need this on other devices that run Windows. Are we gonna start seeing that soon?
8: Yeah, for sure. So we've been already working a lot with our PC OEM ecosystem with the likes of Dell, Lenovo, um, HP, and we've been doing a lot of work with them to sort of tee up this new infrastructure, this new platform. They're very excited about it, so you'll expect to hear more from them soon. Uh, And then with mobile, we've been doing a lot to connect uh, your iPhone or your Android phone to your Windows PC. We have a capability now that links it together. And now, what we showed today is you can use Copilot to, for example, say, hey, tell me what's going on with my text messages and maybe send one on my behalf. Great. Well, Yusuf,
0: thank you so much for taking the time to join us. a big day for Microsoft announcing the uh, pricing and release date for Copilot, September 26th, and November 1st for the paid product. Thank you so much for joining us, Yusuf. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you.
1: Thank you both very much, Yusuf Mehdi and our Steve Kovac. And uh, yeah, I'm seeing analysts tweeting about how uh, the, the show-off moment of this Microsoft meeting was their Laptop Studio 2 smoking the MacBook on visualization, and Llama 2, as we hear Intel as well talking more about on-device AI. Coming up, it's the deal of the day. Cisco buying Splunk in a cash deal worth $28 billion. We'll look at what it means for the cloud and cybersecurity space. Cisco is also the worst performer in the Dow, down 4% on that announcement, while UNH is outperforming, along with some other insurance names. We'll tell you why after a break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow is well off the session lows at the moment, down only 128 points. It is the outperformer, though, uh, with the S&P down about nine-tenths of a percent and the Nasdaq down almost one percent. But again, the declines have moderated somewhat. Still a bit of a reverberation effect from the Fed's meeting yesterday and sharply higher bond yields. Some of the movers we're watching include crude oil hovering back near $90 a barrel. Uh, that's helping names like Marathon and Valero hit all-time highs. Watch that space. Also, the insurers are rising today. We mentioned that before. The break. Why? Well, Elements Health reiterated its full year earnings outlook, and that's offering some relief at a time of heightened uncertainty in the healthcare space around the potential strike at Kaiser Permanente. Uh, meanwhile, office furniture makers Steelcase and Miller Knoll are higher again today. Steelcase set to close at a 52 week high, coming off its best day ever after raising its profit guidance. Why, you ask? This should have been obvious. They're citing improvement in office attendance trends, and that's driving demand for office furniture. Over to Tyler Matheson for the CNBC News Update. Tyler.
11: Kelly, thank you very much. Whistleblowers are saying the federal government is, uh, has poor oversight and it could have led to migrant kids working unsafe and illegal jobs. A watchdog group raised concerns that the Health and Human Services Department may have failed to properly match migrant children with vetted sponsors. The report said that hundreds of children sat in the facility for weeks without talking to a case manager and that there were egregious errors in the discharge system. Hunter Biden was ordered to appear in person at his arraignment over three felony gun charges in October. The Delaware judge in the case said the president's son should not receive special treatment and must be physically present for his initial appearance. Lawyers for Biden said he will plead not guilty. And Sophie Turner sued Joe Jonas to return their two children to England. The petition said that the kids were to stay with Jonas in New York until Turner finished filming, at which point she would bring them back to the U.K. The celebrity couple filed for divorce earlier this month. Uh, A spokesman for Jonas says his only concern is the children's well-being. Kelly, back to you. See you in a few minutes. So
1: tricky. Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, it's a mixed bag for the recent IPOs, with Arm threatening to break below $50 a share. Clavio's debut marks an interesting opportunity, though, for some investors in the direct-to-consumer space. We'll tell you why next. And CNBC celebrating Hispanic heritage and sharing stories of influential Hispanic business leaders. Here is Toast CFO Elena Gomez. I'm really proud to be a Hispanic Latina and in a C-level role and I think I represent what's possible for a lot of young Latinas out there, including my own daughters. There's so much rich history and culture and music and family that I would love to share with my my non-Hispanic colleagues. And when I think about the fact that Hispanics will be such an important part of our communities, of our uh, workforce in the future, I think it's really important to bring them into the fold and really enrich the conversations that, that we're having every day in our communities and at the, in the workplace.
9: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast.
1: back. Let's get back to Leslie Picker with an update on this FTC case against a private equity firm. Leslie, what are we hearing?
7: Hey, Kelly. Yes. Earlier in the hour, we talked about that FTC uh, complaint against U.S. Anesthesia Partners and Welsh Carson, a private equity firm uh, that the FTC alleges had engaged in a roll-up scheme that uh, was anti-competitive in nature. Well, we've now heard back From uh, USAP, U.S. Anesthesia Partners, Dr. Derek Chopa, who is a practicing USAP physician in Texas and a board member, saying, quote, the FTC's intended outcome threatens to disrupt and restrict patients' equitable access to quality anesthesia care in Texas and will negatively impact the Texas hospitals and health systems that provide care in underserved communities." The FTC's civil complaint is based on flawed legal theories and a lack of medical understanding about anesthesia, our patient oriented business model, and our level of care for patients in Texas. Kel?
1: All right, Leslie, thank you very much. Leslie Picker continuing to follow that story today. Meanwhile, when it comes to -to direct-to-consumer, there's been a pretty big divergence between the retailers themselves and the companies powering them. For instance, shares of Allbirds are down 50% so far this year. Figs, the scrubs and athleisure brand, not too far behind, down more than 20%. Warby Parker down 9%. But it's a totally different story for the platform names. Shares of customer engagement brand Braze and e-commerce giant Shopify both up around 60%. And Klaviyo, the marketing platform that made its public debut yesterday, up about 3% today. Is it time to ditch the DTC names and focus on the platforms? Let's ask our next guest, Gil Luria, a senior software analyst at DA Davidson. Welcome, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. You know, we, <laughs> this is like the most consequential part of the markets in some ways, like software as a service platforms. And yet these names are barely, I, Brace, you know, tell me, and, and Klaviyo and Shopify. I mean, this is ultimately, you know, this is the ecosystem.
12: That's right. So this is a case where it's better to provide the tools for companies selling online than to actually sell online. Selling online is an incredibly competitive business. Well, there are very few companies that actually have provided tools at scale for merchants to sell online. And you just mentioned three of the best ones.
1: Right. Shopify, listen, as a consumer, I'm obsessed with it because anytime I see them at checkout, I'm like, thank God I can do this on my mobile phone with a couple of keystrokes while balancing, you know, a million and a half other things. So what you're saying, in other words, is that the very difficulty of being a direct to consumer platform requires that brands use these tools and these marketing tools in particular to try and break through. Is that right?
12: That's right. So let's not forget when you're selling online, you're doing one thing, which is competing with Amazon. If you, you can sell through Amazon, but then you're just renting the customer from them. What these companies allow you to do, and first and foremost, Shopify, is allow you to have your own storefront, own the relationship with the customer. That's incredibly valuable. That's how Shopify has grown to millions of merchants. Now, then, once you have that customer, staying engaged with them is very important. And Clavio is, is a company that allows you to stay engaged with your customer if you're a Shopify merchant, and they do it very well. They do it by email, they do it through text, and increasingly they'll do it through other channels that consumers interact with those merchants. Braze does it for enterprise customers. So for brands and larger companies that want to have that type of engagement and communication with their customer around various digital media, Braze helps you with that. Klaviyo does it at the the low end, at the small end with e-commerce, small e-commerce merchants, mostly on Shopify.
1: Yeah. And in many ways, we've all probably been customers in a way of clavios without realizing it just through some of our uh, best loved names. So, you know, it's not not that you're covering Klaviyo per se, but you do cover Braze. Um, Do you remain bullish on this whole area, Gil, Uh, even in the era of high interest rates, post-pandemic, you know, return to office, we're all shopping online a little bit less, I I suppose. Um, What's the macro to you look like?
12: Oh, very much so. Now, the macro, two different pieces to macro. One is enterprise spending. That's still subdued, will likely stay subdued at least until next year. But in terms of the growth of online, e-commerce, and the share of overall retail, that continues to be double-digit growth. Shopify's volumes grew 17%. Shopify's revenue grew 30%. Braze grew 34%. Clavio just grew 50 percent. The shift e-commerce continues and the companies providing these very valuable tools to merchants trying to sell online will likely continue to ride this wave for a while longer.
1: All right. Gil, thanks for joining us to dig a little bit deeper into one of the bigger IPOs lately. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Gil Luria with D.A. Davidson. Still ahead, Cisco. Some big news today, announcing they'll buy cybersecurity company Splunk. Splunk shares are surging 21%. Cisco down of more than 4%, though. Why the old tech giant agreed to pay nearly a 24% premium in its largest acquisition ever? We'll tell you about that next. And as we head to break, check out shares of Deer, now down 3% after the company announced they will lay off 225 workers in Illinois, effective next month. It's worth noting agricultural prices like wheat, corn, and soybeans have been much lower this year so far. Wheat down nearly 27%, corn down 30%. And that's been a headwind for Deer. We're back in a moment here on The Exchange. Cisco striking a deal to buy cybersecurity company Splunk. Here's the interesting part, $157 a share. That was a 30% premium from Splunk's closing price yesterday. $28 billion deal, also more than 10% of Cisco's market cap. A little bit of investor nervousness there. Deirdre Bosa is here for today's Tech Check. Deirdre.
10: Kelly, there's so many great angles baked into this deal. There's what it says about Cisco and legacy tech, how it wants to grow going forward and what it wants to do, like software. But there's also what it says about enterprise software evaluations, implications, of course, for the M&A market. Let me take the second one, though. Splunk was part of the class of enterprise software that was aggressively correcting at the end of 2021 and 2022. Now, the fact, Kelly mentioned this, that Cisco was paying a 30% premium, $157 a share, that is appealing to other SaaS companies that saw their valuations plummet over the last few years. And that feeling, let's call it relief, perhaps best expressed by Boxio, Aaron Levy, in a tweet referring to the deal. He says, Wow, we are so back. Now, what that means going forward, though, still needs some deciphering. Does Splunk make enterprise software companies more willing to do deals? Does it lead to more MA? Or, Kelly, maybe it could lead them to hold out for a better comeback. Splunk, remember, it's still unprofitable on a gap basis, but it has been narrowing its losses. It's still growing, and that kind of company has proved to be really appealing. That's a Clavio as well, by the way.
1: Yeah, Deirdre, it's like I need you to connect the dots for me because... I struggle to sink my teeth into this one. You know, what are the the bigger ramifications, you think? And I don't know which direction to take it. Are they ramifications for Cisco, which has kind of just been casting about? I I don't know. Is it for Splunk and for, I I don't know. I'm I'm unsure
10: what to make of this. (laughs) Okay, all of the above. So let me try and break it down quickly for you. For Cisco, it's interesting. This is a legacy tech company, right? Its main business is still hardware. It wants to move into software and services. Splunk offers them that. Cybersecurity and there's an AI play here as well. So these are two of the buzziest, hottest areas, subsectors of tech. So it gives a legacy company that is growing at a slower rate. It gives them that kind of top line growth that it's looking for. For Splunk, and I tried to sort of illustrate what this means for the enterprise software area. This is a stock that went down to 75 bucks at its low point. Right. The fact that it's going for 157 now, you can see other companies, SaaS companies in both the public and private markets saying that saying, hold on a second. This space is coming back. We don't want to sell yet because we could get more Mm -hmm. or we don't want to IPO yet if you're a private company or they could look at it and say, you know, that's a pretty good price, pretty fair. Maybe we will. So it has implications sort of all over.
1: Yeah, no, you're right, and the fact that the IPO market has been, you know, lukewarm, but that there's some kind of hot deals in the making, maybe gives everyone up and down the food chain, venture capital, private equity, and all that, a little bit of a sigh of relief. Deirdre, as always, thank you uh, for bringing it to us. We appreciate that. Deirdre Bosa with Tech Check. And still ahead, the summer travel season wasn't very kind to the airline stocks. JetBlue, the biggest laggard, falling 43%. But there is another way to play the travel trade, including one that's seen positive returns over the past three months. We will reveal it next. Welcome back to The Exchange. While airline stocks have gotten hammered lately, the travel boom is still playing out in the muni bond market, with surging traffic helping to reignite airport bond sales. Rising rates pressured those sales in the first half of the year with just $3 billion in issuance, less than a third of the amount seen the prior year. But sales in August alone were nearly that amount, $2 billion, according to reports. And with major city airports like Chicago, Atlanta, and Dallas reviving plans to tap the $4 trillion muni market and build and renovate runways, Courses and terminals. My next guest is a buyer of this debt. Joining me now to discuss is Jamie Iceland, head of Muni Fixed Income at Newberger Berman. Jamie, welcome to you.
13: It's great to be back on the show, Kelly.
1: Explain a little bit the dynamic between owning Muni's as uh, rates are, you know, ripping your face off right now. What, what is that doing to Muni bond investors?
13: Uh, our yields are, as you point out, Kelly, they are moving higher in sympathy with the Treasury market. Uh, The Treasury market is really looking at higher for longer and listening to the Fed, and that's pulled our yields higher. I look at that as an opportunity. Higher yields mean more income for investors. And as you move into the fall, Kelly, you get into a time of year where supply tends to go up. That could create some further weakness in the market. And again, I think it's a good time for investors to step in and start buying.
1: What kind of level and again we get into the details here in a second, but just broadly speaking, what kind of levels can you get on munis right now compared with where you what you've been able to get historically?
13: Two years ago, yields uh, began with a one, which is not uh, overly wow. exciting. Today, anywhere on the yield curve, you can buy AAA rated bonds with at least a 3% yield. And if you go further out on the yield curve, 4% to 4.5% yields for high quality munis are, are pretty readily abundant. So. Hmm. The whole landscape has changed. And again, I think that's why the market looks really compelling right now. And we're advising clients to buy.
1: Yeah. But I expect also you're kind of a hold to maturity situation where, you know, versus, you know, kind of being in and out of these things. So let's talk about the airports, Um, (laughs) you know, given what you're saying. And if people are going to pile in and buy this debt, they can uh, come up with some pretty nice revamps of what their what their offerings are, can't they?
13: Yeah, the the airports are exciting sector, obviously dicey when COVID started, but travels back. Any American that's been on an airport in the last uh, nine months can tell you how packed they are. And as you point out, Kelly, the bigger airports like Chicago, Hare, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, those bonds tend to be in the A-rated category. You can pick up 50 to 70 basis points of additional yield. We are an active manager, and when Dallas came uh, to the market in August, We jumped in pretty hard and bought those bonds. And in the 10 year part of the curve, you picked up about 70 basis points of additional yield over that 3% base rate for AAA rated bonds. We thought that was a a phenomenal deal and we uh, bought it pretty aggressively, uh, you know, in our funds and across our business.
1: You know, I watch right now as the shutdown looms, one of the things they keep warning us about is lines at the airports. Is there any near-term or long-term risk here?
13: We feel pretty good. I think uh, if you look, the service economy is super strong. People bought a lot of goods at the start of the pandemic. Now they're back into getting out and traveling. They're into experiences. And we think that is uh, a pretty good tailwind for the uh, for the airport uh, marketplace right now. So, uh, yes, a government shutdown can always cause uh, some volatility, but overall, we uh, we're very constructive on that part of the market.
1: Do you think the, that they ever take on too much debt? You know, I look at some of these are a little bit smaller airports, you know, Charlotte, Minneapolis, um, places like that. You know, Chicago obviously used to be much larger or, or be much larger compared with the others. What, what kind of debt levels are appropriate?
13: I mean, look, they are, as you point out, Kelly, they are doing renovations. LaGuardia has done a gray one and really made that uh, a phenomenal looking and efficient airport. I think you also when you look at uh, airport credits, they have maintained throughout the years very, very strong liquidity positions with cash on hand. So uh, they have to invest in the infrastructure. That's how you continue to attract people to travel. Uh, I think they have room given their liquidity positions to do these infrastructure projects and take on some additional debt.
1: Where else before we go, Jamie, would you be looking uh, kind of maybe related to the airports or uh, maybe elsewhere?
13: I'm gonna stick with the uh, transportation theme, Kelly, and uh, we like toll road bonds a lot. Uh, Obviously people stayed inside for a while when the pandemic started, but they're back out on the road. And uh, you see some toll roads in states like Texas and California, that uh, are showing really, really strong growth and traffic back to pre-pandemic levels. And some of those toll roads can be a high triple B to single A rated credits. So again, you might get 50 to 100 basis points of additional yield over the going rate for a triple A rated bond. Yeah. Uh, we like those credits a lot right now. No,
1: we all noted the headlines. New York, you know, obviously one of the higher tax brackets. But when you're they're offering almost 10 percent, you know, tax adjusted yields, everyone starts to take notice. Jamie, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Jamie Iceland with Newberger Berman. Meanwhile, we just touched on those layoffs over at Deere. Let's bring in Seema Modi for more details with the stock trading lower. Seema.
14: Kelly, John Deere is laying off 225 production employees at its harvester worker plant in East Moline, Illinois. Employees were made aware by leadership yesterday at the factory where uh, combines and other crop producing equipment is manufactured. In total, that plant employs about 2,300 staff so, 225 employees being cut may not seem like a lot, but Wall Street analysts say it does feed into this idea that demand is slowing and that agriculture commodity demand is peaking. We've actually seen corn and soybean prices move lower today and this year. And deer stock, uh, yes, down today and down about 5.5% this week. We were just looking at the chart, now trading at its lowest level since uh, late August, Kelly.
1: It is noteworthy what's happening with some of these soft commodities. Is there, you know, we saw huge upward pressure after the war in Ukraine, obviously just with all the global stimulus the last couple of years. Are we unwinding that now?
14: I think part of the story actually has to do with China, Kelly. This Hmm. idea that demand is weakening, not just on the consumer front, but how that uh, plays into China playing a role in imports and exports. Uh, they are a big buyer of, of our agriculture commodities.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point. As we've seen, it, ironically, the crude oil price Sema keeps right. moving higher, though. Can't can't quite figure that True. one out.
14: I know. No, it's a great point. That's something that we need to. That perhaps plays into what's happening in Russia more so.
1: True. Seema Modi, thank you very much, our Seema Modi reporting. That does it for The Exchange today. Thanks for your time and for more analysis on markets and the economy, sign up for my newsletter in one easy step at cnbc.com slash newsletters or just scan that QR code on your screen. Next on Power Lunch, Costco's reporting next week. We'll preview those results, get some impact with the Dow down 162. We're back in a moment. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place